The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Hey, good afternoon everybody. This is Kevin Keefe, guest host for Mary Woods today. Uh, So again, good afternoon and we're very excited to have Dan Stone a master's level licensed clinical social worker as our guest today with the host Bereavement and Addiction. And I also want to say, uh, Dan, you're also a licensed independent addictions counselor, yeah, substance abuse counselor, and you, are a, you have a certificate in thanatology? Death, dying, and bereavement. Dying and bereavement. Yeah, that's what it is. Uh, it's through a professional organization, uh, the Association for Death Education and Counseling. I guess that's uh, absolutely necessary considering your expertise and what you support people with and bereavement. So, Dan, welcome to the show. Uh, very excited you, to have Kevin. you on today to talk about this. Uh, would, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit more as far as who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, First of all, I'm located in Tucson, Arizona, although I'm originally from New York. I've been living here for over 22 years. Um, I'm a former New York City school teacher who was able to go back to school, change careers. So I got an MSW from New York University. And uh, after a few years, I started to develop an interest in grief. Uh, Part of that is because of my own losses over the years, but also what I observed working in treatment. Uh, From late 1995 until December 2015, I worked for Cottonwood uh, Treatment Center in Tucson that treats co-occurring disorders. So I've done a lot of work with substance abuse and developing uh, knowledge in the bereavement area. Um, So I'm currently uh, retired part-time. I do have a private practice specializing in treating substance abuse and grief and loss. So that's a little bit about me. Excellent. Thank you. So and, uh, is, go ahead. Yeah. So uh, I understand we're going to talk about uh, bereavement and 
addiction. Correct. And if I could just go ahead and talk about the connection. Um, you, got, you took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> well, uh, here's the thing. Uh, I, you know, am uh, personally involved in recovery. Uh, I'm not shy about talking about that because I'm very grateful. And I've been in recovery for almost 30 years. Um, so I have knowledge from a personal point of view as, as well as a professional point of view. Uh, one of the things that I noticed uh, in working in treatment is that when the patients would start to be able to think more clearly and do various assignments, they started to connect with their losses. And for substance abusers, the losses are multiple. And right. they may not be death-related, uh, but they're very significant because of the behavioral aspects of the illness of addiction. Okay. So uh, what I noticed, I would assign my patients to do timelines. Uh, we'd give them butcher paper and markers, and they could get oh, yeah. as creative as they wanted to. And then they would mm -hmm. present it to the group. We put it up on the wall, and they would lead us through their life. And somewhere around 1997, I started to focus on the significance of uh, losses and the change in behavior, not just with alcoholics and addicts, but also with people experiencing other issues like depression, right. anxiety, PTSD, that when there was a significant loss, things started to go downhill. And also what I have observed over the years is how many people who thought they were stable in their recovery, when they experienced a significant, complicated, traumatic loss, that they yeah. would return to the use of substances, often starting with uh, anti-anxiety medication or opiates to medicate the pain that they were experiencing. So I became interested in this. Uh, I began to explore it, going to conferences, workshops, trainings. Uh, and I would say in 2002, I experienced a shift in my thinking about bereavement and the way I approached it clinically. Uh, I attended a conference sponsored by the organization that I now belong to. And uh, I did a two-day workshop on uh, advanced grief therapy with someone who is one of the leaders in the field of thanatology, a man by the name of Dr. Robert Niemeyer, who uh, is out of the University of Memphis. And it was terrific. I learned so much from this man, and I started to apply some of the suggestions that he he offered. So it shifted my thinking away from uh, the old stage approach to grief and loss to right. seeing it in a different way, in a more interpersonal way, in a more, um, in a focus more on meaning making, understanding how it changes people and how their ideas and worldview change and assisting them in accommodating to the loss. 
rather than expecting them to go through a predictable trajectory from one point to another. Could uh, you spell out those, been, that tra- traditional predict, tra- <laughs> predictable sure. trajectory? Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, ideas about working with grievous has been around ever since the days of Sigmund Freud mm-hmm. and other people. Uh, and at some point, in, well, in 1969, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross uh, wrote a book on death and dying, uh, discussing the work she did with terminally ill patients. And she noticed that they seemed to go through a pattern, uh, consisting of, uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Mm-hmm. So, uh, many people took her model and applied it to the way grievers experience the loss. And that was a model that was in vogue for a while, although in the last 30 years or 40 years, people started doing research and discovering that uh, grievers did not go through a predictable pattern. Mm-hmm. You know, that they may go in and out of experience those things that everyone grieves uniquely, individually. So you can't apply a model and and a cookie-cutter approach to the bereavement experience. And there have been many people over the years who have helped to look at various aspects. Uh, And if I may, I can talk about some of these uh, because I've used some of these models in my work. Uh, one of them was mm-hmm. by a guy named William. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I have a question to follow up afterwards, but please. Okay. Keep talking. Uh, William Warden from Harvard uh, came up with the tasks of mourning. The first mm-hmm. task is accepting the reality of the loss. The second task is feeling the feelings. The third task is is adjusting to an environment in which the deceased is no longer there. And then the fourth task is uh, taking the energy that was put into these lost relationships and investing it in new relationships and activities without forgetting. Uh, The goal for me in doing treatment with grievers is not to get them to a point where they're no longer thinking about the deceased, but they have an integrated idea of who the person was and how how they approach this. They're able to talk about positive things. You know, for example, uh, when my father died, he died of pancreatic cancer, and, you know, it was fairly quick, and it was not pleasant you know, watching him deteriorate in that way. Uh, So initially my thoughts and feelings were connected to the way I saw him rather than seeing the whole life that I experienced. You know, the man who is vibrant and alive and Mm -hmm. active in my life and supportive and loving. So, you know, my goal is to... uh, help people to accommodate to the loss right? so that, you know, they're going to feel sadness over a period of time. I think we always will feel some sadness, but we're also able to tell the stories, the funny stories, 
you know, the special things that we receive, the gifts we receive from our loved ones. Uh, and, you're talking uh, about gratitude. You know, there are, there are other uh, models, uh, if I may. Uh, one model is called the dual process model. Uh, mm-hmm. It's conceived that people tend to oscillate between one orientation to another back and forth. One orientation is a loss orientation where they're actively grieving. But I think the, the organism cannot tolerate staying in that mode. And we oscillate to a restoration orientation where we're living our lives. We're not forgetting about the loss, but we're able to integrate and do things that are positive and give us pleasure. And sooner or later, we'll vacillate, you know, we'll oscillate rather back to the other orientation. Uh, okay. But I think we, over time, we spend less time in the loss orientation and more time in the restoration and the healing. Well, that might be a good time for us to uh, pause and get ready for a commercial break. I think we'll be heading out for our first of three. Okay. Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Are your eating habits out of control? Does food have power over you? Have you been diagnosed with an eating disorder or feel that you might have one? Before you follow advice or suggestions from uninformed sources, listen to Chasing Hunger every Tuesday with host Kathy Welter-Nichols, who will dispel the myths, reveal the secrets, share good practice, and open the gateway through awareness and deeper understanding. Every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. It's time to experience radical well-being. Learn to nourish your heart, body, and mind. Manifest your power in the present and learn to live your life's infinite potential. It's time to experience Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio with host Rochelle McLaughlin. Each week, you'll learn about essential skills and knowledge to help you discover and create your own experience of health and well-being and learn to be empowered to take bold and loving action toward manifesting the life you long for. Tune in every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific and 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America's Health & Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hello, everybody. Welcome back with our guest, Dan Stone. Um, Dan, I want to thank you for sharing. Uh, I get two very personal things. One, um, your recovery. Uh, thank you very much. And again, congratulations on the work you've put in for your uh, length of recovery. It is amazing. And thank you. thank you for, uh, you're welcome. And thank you for sharing and for about around the death of your father. These personal stories, which really uh, bring things home to not only myself, but also to anyone who's listening. Uh, Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Uh, The death of my father and my recovery, my uh, entering into recovery, are very much intertwined. Uh, So if I could talk about that. Uh, My father died in February. February 1986, at the time, I was actively engaged in, uh, well, one way to put it is destroying myself. Uh, I was using alcohol and other substances, and uh, my health was declining. Uh, I was starting to feel suicidal. Uh, At the time, I was married, and I'm still married to the same person, and we had two kids, so, uh, you know, the lights were on, but no one was home. You could see me in the pictures. You know, I was around, but I was not emotionally connected. And sometimes I would get very, very irritable and angry. And, uh, you know, I was not pleasant to be around. I was totally self-centered, caught up in uh, my anger and externalizing blame towards everyone else. You know, why doesn't mm-hmm. the wife do this? The children do that. You know, why isn't the government doing this? And not focusing on what I was doing to contribute to the destruction of the family. Right. So uh, at that time in 86, February 86, my father died. And my response to the loss was to medicate myself with substances. And that continued for about a year and a half until I got to that point where uh, inside I knew I was in trouble. Right. And I would say to myself, tomorrow will be different, and it never was. And my wife was seeing a therapist, and the marriage was falling apart, and she suggested that I join her in a session with a therapist. And I had always been very good at rationalizing and justifying my behavior. I mean, one time my wife and I went to see a therapist and the therapist, uh, my wife said to the therapist, you know, he, he uses every day. And the therapist said to me, well, Dan, what about that? And I proceeded to go into an elaborate rationalization of the fact that since I was working at the time and bringing home mm-hmm. a paycheck, it justified my behavior. And my wife was rather disgusted with me and the therapist. And we didn't go back until she found this black belt Al-Anon therapist who knew everything about addiction. 
And when I went into that first session, she kind of uh, cut me a new one, if you know what I mean. Uh, She confronted me about my addiction, and she told me I needed to go to meetings that I couldn't possibly work on saving the relationship until I made changes. And with some fits and starts, uh, after about a month, after that first session, uh, I got it and I started applying myself to my recovery. At the same time, we continue to do various kinds of therapy, uh, assisted by that particular woman. And something happened after three months of solid recovery. I had a very amazing dream. And if I can, I'd like to share that. Uh, Uh, Sure, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. So what was going on is that my head was starting to clear. And I was starting to be active in taking care of myself. And I had this dream in which I was sitting in a subway car, a New York City subway car. It happened to have been one of those old cars that had the tweed kind of wicker seats and green walls. And I'm talking to someone who is actually just a prop in the dream. They're there to listen to me. And I'm telling them how my life is improving. Things are starting to get better at home. I'm feeling hopeful. And in the corner of the subway was someone sitting with a newspaper covering them. While I was talking, the person with the newspaper stood up, put the newspaper down, turned to me, faced me, and it was my father. And it was my father in a way that I never even knew him. You know, he looked young. His hair was dark and kind of flowing. He never had really long hair, but for some reason he had longish hair. He was wearing a T-shirt. His muscles were rippling. Mm-hmm. He looked terrific. And I said to him, Dad, what are you doing here? You're dead. And he said, I just wanted to tell you that it's going to be okay. Just keep doing what you're doing. And I woke up from that dream with tears running down my face. And shortly afterwards, I went to the cemetery. Uh, All my people are buried uh, somewhere off the Southern State Parkway in Long Island. And I went to the cemetery, and I stood by his grave, and I cried and cried and cried and talked to him. And when I walked away, I felt like a weight had been lifted. I felt that it was a message dream. It was a visitation dream. Mm -hmm. It was a validation of the direction that my life was going to. And I was starting to get to a place where I was no longer running away from alcohol and other substances, but I was running towards wanting to feel better. You know, I was starting to experience moments of serenity of feeling like I belong, that I'm a part of this world, that I have a purpose. And so instead of chasing the high, I was now chasing that. And, uh, you know, I continue to participate in the work. Uh, I also uh, discovered that I began to think about more positive aspects of my life with my father. And photographs were very helpful in that. Uh, I was looking at a photograph of him in the early days after he died. I would just burst into tears. Mm -hmm. But there's a photograph 
of myself and my father on at the beach in a place called Rockaway in New York. Mm-hmm. He used to spend the summers there, and he's sitting in a beach chair, and I'm sitting on his lap. I must be about five or six years old, and someone took the photograph. But when I looked at it this time, after uh, a number of years, I noticed something interesting happening in the background. We were sitting facing away from the water. And at, I guess, precisely right before the photograph was taken, everybody in the background stood up. People got off their chairs, got off their blankets, and they're looking out at the water. So what happens when everyone's looking out at the water? Something's happening. Someone Mm -hmm. could be drowning. I don't think we ever experienced sharks in the Atlantic by New York. But something unpleasant was happening, and we were totally oblivious. You know, I'm sitting on his lap, and I look like the happiest kid in the world. So I looked at this picture, and I started to laugh. It just struck me really funny. And, uh, you know, it was part of the healing process for me. So you're talking about... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Originally, what you had said in the first part of the show is one of your goals is to integrate integrating an idea of who the person was. So I think this is what you're yes. speaking to. You started to reintegrate not only who your dad was, but the relationship. Yes. I was reconnecting with the relationship because the relationship didn't end when he died. That's my right. personal thoughts about that. It changes. Mm-hmm. But because of addiction, I had pulled away from that relationship. I was not connecting to it emotionally or cognitively. So now as a result of recovery and really starting to do the grieving in recovery, that I was able to get to a place where I could think about him without falling apart. But every once in a while, I might tear up. You know, I might feel some sadness. You know, for example, uh, in about three, well, three weeks, uh, both of my children who live on either coast and their children, mm-hmm. and one of the husbands is descending on Tucson. So this is going to be the first time I have everybody in the same place. And, you know, I think about it, wouldn't it be nice if my father could, could know what my life is like now and mm-hmm. that I am happy and that I feel fulfilled? Because, you know, I never thought that he really completely approved of me, and I probably gave him good reason not to. But I think, you know, the dream was a validation. I think that if he were able to see this, uh, he would be pleased. And he would be pleased with the kind of man that I have become as a result of being in recovery. Now, you had asked the question about uh, bereavement and addiction. Yeah. And... I have worked with many people who came into recovery and then they start to address the losses. But the losses are are many as a result of the addiction and not necessarily death-related. Correct. Uh, people experience the loss of relationships uh, you know, due to breakups, divorce as a mm-hmm. result of the, the behavior. Uh, lots people of businesses, lose lots of children, of dreams, I've had lots of family members that, you know, that are still living. It's just that you walked away or we burned those relationships. So there's, yeah. there's quite a bit to uh, grieve. Yes, there is. And some uh, 
people in re- who come into recovery uh, are experiencing something that people have called social death. Yep. Uh, they are alive, but they're treated as if they are dead. Uh, I have a sponsor, a wonderful man who's sober many, many years, mm-hmm. and uh, for many years, his brother would have no contact with him, even during uh, over a decade or so of his recovery. And then when his parents died, and he he was there for his parents in recovery, his mm-hmm. brother started to connect with him again. Uh, his brother wow. is now deceased, but... Uh, he was there at his brother's bedside, and they had healed the lost relationship. But I you know, was talking Dan, about social at this, hopeful, at this hopeful juncture, um, I want to just briefly pause for another uh, commercial break. Uh, we're going to be taking one very shortly, and I'd love to pick this up uh, when we come back in a few minutes. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. You probably don't spend too much time talking about that place down there. Why not? There's now a show where that's mostly what we talk about and so much more. It's the Womb Happy Hour with host Lorraine Giordano. It's all about your body and the magical power you possess. Guys, you might want to tune in too. There's no reason to be squeamish. Listen for the Womb Happy Hour, broadcasting live every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. your health where you think it should be if you're like most people the answer is probably not where can you get the answers you need to get on the right track the answers start on occupy health each week host dr susan downs and her guest experts will answer your questions as well as prepare you for questions you'll want to ask your health provider you'll want to plan for your optimal health with occupy health listen fridays at 11 a.m pacific time 2 p.m eastern time on voice america health and wellness Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is guest host Kevin Keefe. Today with our guest, 
Dan Stone. Um, Dan, thank you so much. And I hated to go to commercial break and interrupt, you know, what you were talking about because uh, what you were well, tapping into. Thank you, Kevin. I can pick it up. Oh, perfect. Thank you. It just it started to be All right. very, uh, So we were talking about uh, we were talking about uh, the multiple losses that people in early recovery experience. Yes. Uh, one of the losses is the loss of health. Uh, many people, uh, sometimes older people coming into recovery are experiencing illnesses that have developed as a result of their addiction and which were unattended to, untreated, for example, diabetes. Uh, sometimes people are starting, you know, are still displaying some alcoholic dementia, which hopefully resolves over a period of time. Uh, the losses of other family members, the losses of employment. Uh, as you may know, there are many people who have had problems uh, working because of being under the influence. Uh, when they're fortunate, they're able to go into a uh, an employer, go to an employee assistance program, and get the treatment that they need. Right. Uh, in some cases, they have burned the bridges. So they've lost the employment. They've lost careers. Uh, I've known nurses and doctors who've lost their licenses, mm-hmm. uh, lawyers who have been disbarred. And here they are in early recovery, and they've also lost their financial security. They've blown money uh, because of messy divorces. They may have lost their home and uh, their ability to see their children. Um, And then sometimes when people come into recovery, uh, they're discovering that certain illnesses like cancer have been undetected because they weren't taking care of themselves. Um, There's a joke about two things that happen to alcoholics when they come into recovery. One is they get their teeth fixed. The other is they go back to school. There are so many people in recovery who had interrupted, uh, interrupted schooling because of their addictions and they come into recovery, and as they settle down and they become more clear, they're able to start to develop new ventures, businesses, training, going back to school. Uh, I'm an example of that. Uh, after three years of recovery, uh, mm-hmm. I went back to school, and it is only because of recovery that I was able to do this. And I was actually quite frightened uh, well, not very frightened, but I was certainly concerned about my ability to participate in a graduate program with people who did not have the addiction history that I had, uh, who were stable and who were much younger than I was. Excuse me. And, uh, you know, fortunately, because uh, of recovery, I had developed some very positive coping strategies, including having the discipline to focus, to ask questions, to not be afraid of what other people are going to think of me, but to focus on my goals. And I did quite well. 
And it was a rigorous uh, graduate program in social work uh, mm-hmm. with two internships. Uh, and, you know, I was able to do it, and I learned a ton. And it was only because I was in recovery. So another loss, if I can go back to the losses that people experience, is a Just loss that I Can I interrupt you one, one time here? Sure. So it, because you say because you were in recovery, you were able to succeed fairly well in a master's degree program. And part of that recovery, too, was your ability to grieve, correct? Uh, yes. Absolutely. Or to have grieved. Pardon? Or to have grieved. Yes. Yes. Okay. And I think that applies to people who come into recovery who have co-occurring issues like trauma, uh, depressive disorders, mood disorders. Um, the question is, uh, you know, what do we address first? And in the area of addiction, I think a person mm-hmm. needs to get sober and stable, established in their recovery, whatever that recovery may look like, whether it's 12-step recovery or faith-based recovery or something called smart recovery, you know, whatever it is that they're established, they're connected, they have a support system, and they can start to address other issues. It took me three months before I could actually grieve over the loss of my father. And 10 years later, when my mother died, I had a very different bereavement experience because of being stable in recovery. I was Mm -hmm. able to be there for my mother. I was able to be there for my family and for myself using my resources to talk to the people who cared about me so I could get through that because it's very difficult to go through bereavement for anybody. And for some people, if the bereavement is complicated or traumatic, then uh, there are other issues that kick up. So, um, Specifically, Dan, I got a question. How, could you give an example of, a, uh, of trauma? Like how could it be traumatic? Okay. Uh, sexual trauma, for example. Uh, There are many people who uh, have been uh, sexually assaulted during childhood or during Mm -hmm. their college years, date rape, who repressed it. Uh, There was a period of time when I was a primary counselor at Cottonwood when uh, I experienced working with men who had been uh, sexually abused as children by an older relative or a neighbor. And because of the shame, they stuffed it. And when they came into treatment and I would start to take history and discuss these things and ask these questions, uh, you know, they would start to disclose and they talked about the fact that they felt that they were damaged goods as a result of it. And sometimes, often I should say, because of their feeling that they weren't uh, a true man because of that experience, they would Mm -hmm. compensate by becoming more aggressive by the use of alcohol and drugs and other addictions to cover it up. And what a relief it is to be able to be in a safe environment where you could actually start to talk about it and then normalize their reactions and also address 
the fact of blaming themselves. You know, learning to shift the anger towards themselves and place it on the, the object, which is the perpetrator. Mm-hmm. You know, and some of the work, that, you know, when they're uh, mentally and emotionally able to handle it, they could start to do the work on the traumas. There we go. Okay, thank you. And including uh, doing various kinds of work. For example, they may do uh, EMDR, eye movement desensitization uh, reprogramming, if yeah. I got that right. I don't do that modality, but it's very helpful. <laughs> I think you did. Pardon? I think you got it right. Oh, okay, thanks. Uh, it's very helpful to reduce the anxiety related to dealing with the trauma over the years. I mean, a lot of people are medicating that trauma because the anxiety uh, of the PTSD is very powerful and the recurring thoughts and intrusive thoughts and flashbacks. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's kind of like with with approaching grief, you want to help people who have experienced trauma to get to a place where they're empowered. So um, these are some of the things that start to emerge in early recovery. Uh, Family of origin issues, abuse issues. There was a woman that I worked with uh, in, in treatment who had been over 20 years sober. And she relapsed and came to treatment. She had never fully addressed the incest that she experienced. And the incest was by a parent. So the confusion was this particular parent, her father, had treated her in a very loving way, whereas her mother and her sisters did not treat her well at all. So the confusion of having this person who seems to be really supportive, but at the same time, they're molesting her. So she had never addressed the trauma. She relapsed. She came into treatment, and she started to do the work. And then when she left treatment, she continued with her therapist or her home community to work on those issues. So, um, well, so I have a question for you, Dan, right before we do our, our last commercial break. Um, so when you had referenced earlier doing a timeline. I think you referenced it as butcher paper. This is the roll of brown paper, right? That uh, right. a lot yes, of folks use. Okay. So on the paper, so if that comes up in early recovery and folks are doing their timeline and you know that there's some uh, drama, there's some losses, some, some bereavement yeah. some, that needs to happen, but it may not be the right time. How do you quickly, before our break, do you say, how would you address that without getting into it because you know it's just not the right time? Well, you wouldn't have them do that particular assignment. Oh, okay. You, know, you wouldn't you would do it focus early more on uh, safety. Yep. You know, making sure that they're not going to decompensate, fall apart as a result of addressing these things. So for some okay. people, I mean, the people who have, you know, higher functioning, mm-hmm. who have enough skills, internal coping skills, to deal with with heavy affect are able to do these kinds of things, but some people are not ready. 
It also right. depends on the kind of treatment program, you know, and the, and the patients that they're admitting. If you're admitting someone who has a lot of psychiatric issues, you know, who's dealing with, you know, first getting stable with bipolar disorder as well mm-hmm. as dealing with addiction, or there may be some psychosis present, then right. you really have to think about timing. When is the okay. right place to kind of get them? You know, and some of the people will resolve Absolutely. some of this stuff and get to a place where they can address it, or they need to wait till they get home. All right. Well, thank you for that quick, uh, quick answer, and we're going to head for our last commercial break. Thank you, Dan. We'll be back with everyone in a few minutes. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Are you a pet parent? Are you interested in a better understanding of the care and health of your best friend? Listen every week for Pet Panorama with Dr. Julie Mayer. Just as in your own personal health care, you can also take charge of the health care of your pet by exploring natural approaches to keep them healthy in addition to more conventional veterinary care. Don't you want them having the best life possible? Listen Fridays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. What causes us to be sick? We're not talking about the actual illness or the scientific cause of illnesses. We're talking about your body and health. Listen for the healing whisper of return to peace. Each week, host Dr. Marianne Chase shows you how to listen to your heart to identify poor health, stress, and disease. You'll learn how to heal energetically and spiritually as well as physically. It's time to depend less on the drugs and more on the heart. The Healing Whisper airs live every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hi, welcome back, everybody. This is guest host Kevin Keefe. With our guest, Dan Stone. Um, Dan, thank you uh, again. Very grateful to have you on. I'm pretty sure we could go on longer than we have. So I want to ask a very directed question for the last part of this segment. 
Um, there are folks okay. out there that are interested in, in looking for specialized, qualified uh, counselors, therapists like yourself, who, in looking for a qualified therapist to help folks with uh, grief loss, um, their bereavement. You know, not only what what questions should they be asking? What modalities uh, do you utilize, and what should folks be asking for? Well, uh, it's a good question, and I, I want to start by saying that uh, there are many counselors who will say that they treat grief and loss. Mm-hmm. And they may be very good at doing it, but they may be uh, trying to do resolution or closure on something that you that you don't close the door on. Uh, for example, I had a client who had seen another therapist who wanted to use that stage model so that they get to a place of acceptance and they were kind of rigid in their approach. Uh, see, I have a certification in death, dying, and bereavement uh, to a professional organization, and they do have a website where there is a uh, where you can find a specialist, and they will list specialists in uh, various cities around the country. Um, in some places, they may not have anyone listed because they're just not connected to that professional organization, but another way to find a therapist uh, or counselor is to use a website like Psychology Today, which Mm -hmm. has a therapist finder. Now, for example, if you go to that website and you do an advanced search and put in grief and loss in Tucson, Arizona, then it's going to give you a list of therapists. And the first group of therapists are going to be people who may uh, address grief and loss as a specialty. For example, you know, my picture will pop up, you know, and my my uh, profile will prop, you know, come up, and it will right. mention that uh, you know I focus on grief and loss and that kind of stuff. Um, but you know, I think that it's helpful for someone to have an interview with the therapist before you actually see them, to talk to them and ask them, uh, do, you addr- do you address grief and loss? How do you do it? You know, what is your approach in helping me to get through experiencing my loss? I also want to tell your listeners that in many cases, people do not need to see a counselor. The reasons why someone would uh, see a counselor that specializes in bereavement is if after a period of time they find that they're not thriving, that they're ruminating, that they're still yearning, that they're preoccupied with thoughts of the deceased, you know, and these that they were very dependent on the deceased. Mm-hmm. Now, for example, I've worked with with grievers who, when they lost their spouse, uh, they were at a loss because they didn't know how to deal with the bills, the computer, the car, mm-hmm. and they had to learn these things. And it made the, the grieving process, the mourning, very complicated for them and difficult. 
I remember one day a client came in and reported that she had a small victory. She took her car out and had a flat tire, and she knew enough to call AAA. Now, it sounds like it's really kind of trivial, but for this particular person, it was a big deal because they felt that they were becoming more independent because it's the kind of things that her husband would have taken care of. Right. So um, I, think, I think a person needs to have a conversation with a counselor. I've had many conversations with people who called me up and were interested in coming. And mm-hmm. after a while, they made a decision they wanted to come see me or not. Um, another consideration is if you are a religious person, you may want to have someone who is a faith-based counselor. So some of your listeners may be concerned about, you know, if I identify as a Christian, mm-hmm. you know, am I going to have to work with someone who understands my background, where I'm coming from? You know, it's certainly appropriate to find out. Um, you want to look at training. You want to make sure that they are licensed, mm-hmm. that they have a license in a behavioral health field. Like in Arizona, we have licensed marriage and family therapists, clinical social workers, substance abuse counselors, and professional counselors. So my suggestion is make sure that they are licensed in the state that they're practicing. Mm-hmm. And also when you look at profiles, how many years of experience do they have? So uh, these are some of the things that people can, can look at. Perfect. Now, thank you. Uh, do you have, a, do you have another question or can I continue? <laughs> I did have one not related to this, but go ahead. I think I might be able to squeeze it in before we're cut off at the end. Okay. Well, uh, I just wanted to say that, you know, if you come to see me and you're in early bereavement, mm-hmm. then we're going to go very slowly. And one of the, maybe in the second or third session, I may ask people regardless. I have, I have a client who, lost a spouse over a year ago. Uh, He went to a funeral of a close friend who died, and it kicked up a lot of feelings for him. And he realized that he was not done doing the grief work. So I had him bring in photographs of his spouse and himself at various times during the course of their marriage, their life together. And this way he is telling the story of his relationship. And I get to learn a lot more and I get to put a face to the names. Mm-hmm. So I've very respect bring in shopping bags filled with photographs and we set it up on my desk and mm-hmm. they take me through what was going on in this photograph. How are you feeling? What was your life like then? And that's one of the first things I may do. And there are other things. For example, I may ask them to do something called a loss characterization where they write about themselves in the third person as if they're a loving and trusted friend, starting with right before the loss and going through the early bereavement period until the present. It's not a long assignment, but they get to step away and observe themselves and what was their worldview, their assumptive world before the the loss 
and then afterwards. And then something else that I have done many, many, many times is to ask them to write a letter addressed to the deceased. When they bring the letter in, uh, I will set up two chairs facing each other. I will ask them to describe the deceased. You know, if they have a picture, we can use that and put it on the chair. Uh, And then they read the letter they've written. And I give them a, a suggested format that they could use. And after they finish the letter, I will ask them if they have anything else to say to the deceased. And if it was a positive relationship, I will Mm -hmm. ask them if they can give a voice to the deceased and dialogue back to themselves. And then they'll go back to their chair and they will speak as themselves again to the deceased. And then if they're done, you know, and I check that out with them, then we will change the chairs back, you know, de-roll and then mm-hmm. I will listen to talk about the experience. And sometimes I get a lot of tears, oh, a lot sure. of sobbing. And they usually report after they do this exercise that they feel some degree of relief. They're yeah. able to get out anger. They're able to get out the guilt and the shame and the sadness and the hurt. That sounds like a beautiful process, Dan, and thank you. I hate to interrupt because uh, I'd like to keep going, but we are at the end of our show. And I do want to thank you, Dan Stone, for being a guest on One Hour at a Time. It has been an absolute pleasure. I hope everybody has a great day. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One Hour at a Time. We'll see you next week.